Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Alex Bellows will join us to discuss mathematical counting systems. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the world of mathematics can often seem daunting to many. However, the amazing counting systems fundamental to mathematics are found throughout the world. And joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Alex Bellos. Mr. Bellos is the noted author. His latest release, Here's Looking at Euclid, A Surprising Excursion Through the Astonishing World of Math, explores the uh, amazing world of math for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Bellos, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thanks for letting me be here. Well, it's certainly our pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is really a very fascinating book. Here's looking at Euclid. I'm curious, maybe, if you can tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book. Well, I'm a math major. I went to Oxford for about 20 years ago to study math and philosophy. But then I got sort of distracted by journalism. I ended up writing for papers in the UK, and then I ended up in Brazil as the South America correspondent for The Guardian. So I had this, all this experience of sort of being a foreign correspondent. When my tour of duty was up, so to speak. I came back to London and I was thinking, well, what could I do? And I thought, well, why don't I combine my kind of math upbringing, my math academic roots with this idea of reportage? And they sort of merged together to become this book, which it's like my kind of dispatches from the world of mathematics. And I spent a year going around the world using those skills that I'd got as a foreign correspondent, interviewing people, having adventures, the sort of adventures in the world of math. I thought that was a slightly different, sort of fresh look at quite a traditional subject. Well, it certainly is. It's almost like expedition through the world of math as you travel around the world here. And it's certainly filled with very interesting stories, but there is sort of an overarching theme that uh, unifies it all. Before I started researching this, I thought that math is exactly the same everywhere in the world because two and two is four everywhere and everyone must have numbers. And the first thing that I realized is, no, it's not the case that everyone does have numbers. There are several tribes um, all around the world, hunter-gatherer communities that haven't developed numbers. The most primitive of them have sort of one-ish, two-ish, many. That would be the only number word they have. Other ones have slightly more, and the one that I focused on are called the Munduruku, and they have one, two, three, four, five, many, although it's debatable whether their word for four and five actually concrete numbers, and they could just have one, two, three, four-ish, five-ish, many. And then I also realized that different cultures have completely different attitudes to how they approach math, how they approach counting, and I spent a, lot, well, I spent a couple of weeks, but lots of research in Japan, um, just about the use of the abacus, that they still use the abacus to learn how to count. And then I learned of slightly kind of offbeat crazy things I didn't realize that existed. For example, the um, Dozenalist Society of America, which is campaigning to bring in two new numbers, 10 number digit system. They want to count rather than 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. They want to go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, deck L, which should be single digit, Doe for a dozen, and that would be the new one zero, because if you have 12 digits, 
a base 12 system, and mental arithmetic or, or arithmetic and calculation becomes much easier. So I learned all these kind of weird and wonderful things that I never knew existed. It's interesting that uh, most of these systems are based on fundamental limitations of our human body. That is, 10 numbers reflected of 10 digits that we have on our hands. Oh, that's true, because the most common number systems or base systems that there are over history have been 5, base 5, base 10, and base 20. And there's an obvious reason for that, and it's purely anatomical, which, you know, it's handy if we're very primitive people learning to count, but what these people who want to introduce two new digits in, they're saying, well, we're not primitive man anymore, we're quite sophisticated, and we need to use the easiest and the most comfortable one for multiplication and, and division, which would be 12, because 12 has more factors, more numbers that can divide it. You can divide 12 into 2, 3, 4, and 6, rather than 10, which just has 2, 2 and 5. So that's why they won't want to change it, but it's true. We're kind of trapped, really, or guided very much by our own bodies. And I think that's something very counterintuitive. I think, you know, most children, when you learn to count, you don't question why there are 10 numbers. You don't say, hey, mom, why don't we have 11 numbers? It seems obvious there are 10. We're told that. But actually, when you think about it, there is no mathematical reason, no scientific reason at all. It's purely anatomical. So wouldn't this be very difficult then to change our systems of uh, counting? Yeah, I mean, once you've learned to count, counting with a base 10, it would be really, really difficult and real mind sort of twisting stuff to, to try and relearn with a different system. Because I think once you learn one way, the pathways, the neurological pathways in one's brain get so used to it, it would be so effortful to try and change and we'd make so many mistakes. And also, okay, so maybe it would be slightly more efficient um, or even a little bit more than slightly more efficient having 12 digits. But actually, the system works pretty well at the moment. And also, we use calculators to count, so it doesn't make that much difference. The, the, the campaign for base 12 over base 10 was much bigger and much, you know, really serious people were involved in this campaign in the 19th century and even up into about the 1930s and 40s. One of the more interesting features is the concept of zero is really something that was a big advent in the history of uh, mathematics. Yeah, completely. I mean, you'd be fair to say that the invention of zero is probably the most important advance in math. And you could even say, therefore, in the entirety of science, because really, without zero, most calculation was really, really difficult. Before we had zero, we had, um, or in Europe, I mean, America wasn't colonized um, or discovered, we had the Roman numeral system, which was in use for about a thousand years. But you know, as anyone who has the slightest familiarity with the Roman numeral system, there is no zero in it. So when they calculated by multiplying, it's really, really difficult and convoluted. So people, you know, you man in the street couldn't really multiply. So scientists couldn't really do graphs and even just sort of measure the world particularly well because the numbers were so badly suited to it. This all changed when the Indians invented zero. They developed the number system, which is exactly the same, really, as the number system that we have now, which is zero, ten digits, and a place value system, which means that when you put a number, you know that if it's one digit, it's units. If it's two digits, it's units and ten. So we have the place value, the zero, and the ten numerals. That was invented in India about one and a half thousand years ago. And gradually, it moved through the Arab world, and then came to Europe, which is why in Europe, and I think in America, we tend to call it Arab numerals, but actually it's Indian numerals. But what to me was the most surprising thing and the most 
the fascinating thing that, that I found out, because even though I'm a math major, you never learn any of the sort of interesting historical stuff when you're studying it at university, is why was it the Indians who discovered zero? It seems such an obvious thing. Why there were so many other different civilizations, human beings had been thinking and had had numbers for several thousand years, but it was just the Indians who did it. There were other societies that put a marker for zero, but none of them thought that zero could be used in the same way as the other digits. And this really is a result of religion, which, again, is surprising because you think that religion and science, religion and math, are kind of opposed. But actually, it was religion and the religious idea, the mystical idea of the East, that nothingness is somehow something. And this idea that nirvana is only achieved through the abdication of everything, that's sort of zero, that nothingness is something, that they actually developed this idea that zero could be represented by a symbol, um, and that symbol could be manip manipulated just like other numbers. And the great irony is that zero, the symbol, was chosen in India because it represents the face of the heavens, the eternal face of the heavens. So actually, it's zero, but it's also infinity. It's nothing, but it's also everything. And it's these kind of fascinating contradictions that I really wanted to sort of explore and, and communicate um, in, in my book. Was it the concept of zero or nothingness was different then in India than it was in other places? Because so, certainly the concept of nothingness must have existed in other societies as well. Yes, well, in Europe or in Greece, we tended to see zero or nothingness as the void, as emptiness, as nothing, as something that was kind of scary, as something that we wanted to fill, and we filled it with God, we filled it with, with stuff. Whereas definitely India was the first place to feel that sort of nothingness was something, not to be afraid of it, to kind of embrace it, to let it, to sort of, to kind of let go, as well as being very good uh, about zero. The Indians were very good about dealing with infinity and having really, really big numbers. And the Greeks, especially in math, couldn't really get infinity. They sort of didn't like it. And an easy way to demonstrate that is the famous Zeno's paradox. So one of them was Achilles and the tortoise. Achilles and the tortoise are in a race. Achilles is obviously much faster than the tortoise, so he starts behind the tortoise. So the gun goes, the tortoise goes a tiny little bit forward, and then Achilles also goes forward. But by the time Achilles has got to the place where the tortoise started, the tortoise has gone a little bit further. So the next bit of time, Achilles continues to where the second point that the tortoise has got to, but by that time, the tortoise has got even a little bit further. And when you think about it like that, Achilles, and this is the paradox, never gets to the tortoise and never overtakes him in a race. And you know, Greek philosophers didn't understand how to solve that paradox, because obviously if someone that's faster than someone slower will overtake them. And the reason that they got confused is that they were turning that problem into an infinite series of bits of time. And if you add all these infinite things, they would thought, well, good, if you add an infinite amount of things, you get an infinite amount of time. But that's not actually true. And it was only 2,000 years later with the development of calculus that we sort of understood how these infinitesimal things work. If you get an infinite amount of intervals that are getting smaller and smaller and smaller in a certain way, you can have an infinite sum, which is a finite amount. But that's, you know, really quite advanced abstract mathematical thought, which they didn't have in Greek times. And the sort of difficulty with infinity meant that they sort of shied away from it. They didn't want to think either about the void or about infinity. And the Indians did, and zero was the result. So how did the concept then of the irrational numbers start to develop in mathematics? Well, once we had decent numbers, and it, it arrived around about the 13th century in Europe, and it took, I think, a couple of hundred years just for these numbers to get accepted, 
and it was maybe about 500 years ago when really proper mathematicians, or, or math as we would understand it now, and arithmetic, algebra started to emerge. And also, algebra, we needed proper notation. So it was only about four, 500 years ago that there was proper notation. And it's only really with proper notation that you can have a lot of these concepts. And you know, with zero, you couldn't have negative numbers, for example. So negative numbers are really recent. You couldn't have the decimal point. So that's also very recent. And lots of people, we think, oh, well, negative numbers, that's so easy. You know, 0.5, that's so easy. They're almost kind of fresh out of the wrapper in terms of the history of human thought. There were, of course, other things with numbers that you could do by using numbers as length. And this is what the Greeks did. So the Greeks knew what the prime numbers were, and they did quite a lot of quite sophisticated calculations with numbers. But the way they proved these things was visually, sort of geometrically, by looking at the lengths of lines. And that's also one reason why the Greeks never thought of zero being something or zero being a number, because zero was there was nothing on the page. And negative numbers, how can you draw a negative triangle? That's why there's a psychological, conceptual stumbling block for, for the Greeks developing these concepts that we sort of freely use today. I think that one thing which has always helped with mathematics is that there are visual representations. And actually, I've heard some neuroscientists argue that our kind of math bit of our brain and our visual bit of our brain are very close together or linked in some way, and, and that, that, that might be why. That almost, you know, so many developments in mathematics or so many proofs or examples of mathematics, you can't really understand without visualizing them. And I think that once you have a number line with zero on it and you can put the other numbers on it, it doesn't take that much to think, well, why don't we extend the line in the other way and say, okay, well, these are just sort of the opposite, they're like the mirror image numbers. And that seems to have happened quite quickly after there was a zero, there were negative numbers. So that jump doesn't seem to have been, sort of that leap doesn't seem to have been such a great conceptual leap. Really, the big leap is, is, is zero. But also, you know, one thing to talk about the number line, the number line, which is something that we all learn about at school, is one of the very first things that we see, the teacher draws a line, say, okay, this is one, this is two, this is three, and it all goes along. And that seems completely logical to us, that the difference between one and two is the same as the difference between two and three and three and four, that numbers are equally spaced. But researchers have discovered, investigating these tribes that don't have any numbers, and the way they investigate them, they say, okay, just say you've got this line, and on one side you have one dot, and on the other side you have, say, ten dots, and then they give a few suggestions. Where would you put the five dots? Where would you mark it? And it turns out that when Indians, um, so people with, with, with no numbers, are asked where to position the digits between one and ten, they do not put them equally spaced. They actually put the first digits are larger, and then the space between the digits gets smaller and smaller in what we can maybe call a, a, a logarithmic rather than a linear scale. And it seems a bit kind of weird, but then it turns out that when you give the similar test to the four or five-year-old, they actually think that numbers also get smaller as you get bigger. And it's only really once you start teaching them numbers that they think, oh, yeah, actually, that's wrong. Numbers are equally spaced. And when you come to explain this sort of instinct that why numbers might get smaller, really the only explanation is that you're not seeing numbers in terms of points on the line. You're seeing them, you're comparing ratios. And if you compare ratios, numbers do get smaller because the difference between two and one, the ratio is two to one, it's in the ratio of, say, 10 to five, five and 10. So that's sort of interesting. One of the things that 
made me sort of explain quite a lot is that no wonder numbers and calculation is quite difficult because it is quite counterintuitive. At school, we're taught, no, numbers are the, you know, it's as easy as one, two, three. Well, that's, that's just not true. That's, that's a lie that's spun by our teachers. It's as easy as one, two, three, when the distance between one and two is larger than two and three. Well, it's as easy as that. But actually, what we're taught is something which is very recent construction in, in terms of human history. So in a sense, our brains are probably more wired to a logarithmic scale than the... Completely. The natural instinct is. And also, I think you can sort of see this in lots of different ways. So, for instance, when numbers get really, really big, say the distance between a billion and a million. So a good example is before people would say a millionaire or a billionaire, as if there was not that much difference. It was just someone with lots of money. But actually, the ratio of a thousand different. You're never going to mistake one in a thousand but there's actually the same, the same degree of different, difference between them. So the fact that we think that a million is, is very near to a billion seems to show that there's a kind of logarithmic scale working with us. Well, it, it is all certainly very fascinating. We are running slightly out of time, though. I, I'm curious to maybe have some final words regarding the world of math. You know, I'm a trained mathematician, and I spent you know, the first 20 years of my life kind of studying it to quite a high level. And yet I spent the last year... Well, I said two years doing this book project, one year going around the world and one year writing it. And really, math has got this reputation as being sort of dry and sort of irrelevant. And I think that I sort of discovered because math is taught as a way, with sort of practical application and taught in quite a competitive way. You've got to get scores, you know, you've got to get it. So people get kind of quite scared of math. And I think that actually math, when you think about it, it's one of the great sort of creative examples of civilization and, and human heritage. And I don't think that people know that. I kind of really wanted to communicate that in many different ways. And the new book is called Here's Looking at Euclid, A Surprising Excursion Through the Astonishing World of Math. Uh, Mr. Bellis, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. for inviting me. And you were just listening to Mr. Alex Bellos discussing mathematical counting systems. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000. So stay tuned.
Well, it's time to play the game. Uh, it's called the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic 1 through 10. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 will like you uh, to rate them on a number scale 1 to 10 and give a le- little reason why. Mr. Bellis, are you ready to play the game? Yeah, sure. Okay, here we go. Please rate Sharon Osborne. Um, two. Because in the UK, she's completely overexposed. She's absolutely everywhere. And I'm, even though she's quite entertaining, I'm sick to death of her. <laughs> Loved her for a while, but there's just too much. And she's, she's you know, stock record. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, person number two, on a scale of one to ten, uh, it's uh, the soccer star David Beckham. Uh, three. Because, again, he is... Past his best, he is totally overexposed. Every, you know, he just needs to open a door and it gets on the front page of the papers here. I'm not interested in him at all, but I'm giving him one more than Sharon Osbourne because he uh, decided to accompany the British, well, the English team to the World Cup, and he's being, I'm, I'm being very impressed with the way he's behaving. He's being very sort of serious and decent, and he's kind of assuming his role as an ambassador and as a player who's kind of stopped playing quite well, and I know that lots of footballers can't make that move, and they kind of age disgracefully, but he's been quite graceful. So he's overexposed, but I'm, he's more in favor of my book than Sharon Osborne. So he gets one more, three. All right, very good. <laughs> All right, number three, though, is the famed uh, biologist Richard Dawkins. Ten. I think Dawkins is a genius. I've just read his last book on evolution, and... I think it's so rare that you have someone who has really interesting things to say and worthwhile things to say, but who can write it so beautifully. I mean, you read his books closely, and they're written with a style of a great Victorian stylist. So I think he is a serious figure in literature and in science, and he's saying really important stuff that most people aren't saying and I know that lots of people kind of think oh Dawkins he goes too far he's like he's like an extremist well I kind of think you know you need extremists every now and again so he he's like I'm, I'm a huge fan and I give him 10 all right very good enjoying this game by the way <laughs> oh very good <laughs> uh well how about number four it's the late author Douglas Adams well I've never the Douglas Adams wrote Hedgehog's Guide to the, the Galaxy right I have never actually read it because when I was growing up, there was a great TV program that sort of defined my youth. And I feel that I'd, one, I'd sort of seen it, but also it was such a good TV show that I sort of didn't want it to be ruined. So I actually almost feel that I haven't let myself get to know Douglas Adams. So I guess I, I guess I'd give him a, I'd give him an eight, actually, give him an eight. But um, with, with the reservations, I, I don't, don't know him that well. All right. Uh, okay, well, finally, number five, on a scale of one to ten, it's your new prime minister, David Cameron. Oh, right. I give him, I give him four. Four, I'm not naturally a conservative. In fact, I've never voted conservative, and I didn't vote for him. But I feel that we need to sort of go beyond the sort of partisan politics, and I should give him slight benefit of the doubt. And actually, the fact that he has made this coalition with the Liberals, who do have much better ideas, and actually in terms of sort of science, the Liberals are probably the, the best party. So I, I guess I'm giving him, in the benefit of the doubt, I'll give him the four. All right. Well, Mr. Bellis, I want to thank you for uh, sticking around playing our game. And, and again, of course, talking about your new book, which again is called Here's Looking at Euclid, A Surprising Excursion Through the Astonishing World of Math. Thank you very much for your time.
Great, thank you very much. It's been great fun. Thanks, bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.